Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to TGI Crime Day. Today's episode is going to be one of my favorite kind of episodes, and that is a spooky, dark history and hauntings of one of my favorite places in the whole world, Seattle, Washington. If you are an audio-only listener like a lot of you are, you might have missed that I have been doing a fun little series on my YouTube channel called Let's Go Fright Seeing, which is part vlog, part storytelling with like a tiny bit of ghost hunting mixed in, or you might have missed that I'm doing that even if you are a YouTube subscriber, so you can check that out while I take you with me on some of my travels to learn the weird and spooky parts of the places that I visit. When I was in Seattle a few months ago, I went on a couple of dark history and haunted tours, but I wasn't able to vlog as much or get very much footage like I have for those other videos because, of course, as Seattle does, it was pouring the entire time and we weren't in each location very long, so I didn't get to really explore too much or do a lot of filming. Um, So for this episode, it will just be a regular storytelling episode like I have done in the past with other dark history and hauntings. Um, I have one for Paris and one for London that were really fun to talk about that are just straight up me sitting here telling you the things that I learned on my trip. Um, So if you like the vlog style, you can check out Let's Go Fright Seeing, or if you like that more storytelling style like this one is, I will have those playlists both linked to the episode description for this episode. Okay, enough housekeeping. Let's talk about my favorite place, Seattle. Much like Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington is rich with history on the streets and in the streets underneath them. An interesting thing about Seattle is that there are tunnels underneath of it. If you did not know that, I did not know until the first time that I went. And the tunnels are actually fascinating because they are the original city. And then eventually they built up these walls and built roads across the top of them. And a new city was built on top of the old one. It's kind of mind boggling how they pulled that off. It wasn't like they dug underneath and put all this stuff under there. It was a city. And then they had to do some things and major renovations because... To be honest, Seattle was kind of the worst place to try to build a big city, but they went for it anyways and then had to build up the roads, put a new city on top. The original Seattle is mostly remembered as being a big logging town when it was first settled, but much more importantly, long before that, it was the home of many Native American tribes who were indigenous to this area, including the Duwamish tribe. Seattle is actually named for one of the Duwamish leaders, and Seattle is, of course, the English pronunciation of his name that I don't want to butcher and get completely wrong, so we will refer to him as Chief Seattle. In the 1850s, settlers from Illinois moved to Seattle and started a logging town. And just really quick, this was not necessarily great for the Native Americans, to put it simply. They essentially went in, stole this land, like with most places in the U.S. I just think that we should mention these things because people are trying to erase the fact that this is how all of America was settled. People didn't discover it. People were already living here. The indigenous people had an economy set up of hunting and gathering and peaceful trading with travelers that was disrupted by settlers from all over Europe and other places in the U.S. And it's really unfortunate and it's a difficult thing that we don't like to talk about, but it's the truth and we can't just rewrite history to make settlers, colonizers, look like the good guys. I'm not going to go on a long rant, even though I want to. I just wanted to touch on the importance of the indigenous tribes who played a much larger part in the building and success of Seattle than they are ever credited with. Just something to think about. Just please don't forget that this country was started by people who lived here before, white people, okay? And it's important to talk about it. 
even though, oh, nope, you know what? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to rant. I'm going to, I'm not going to rant. We're going to move forward. So as they began to develop the area around the Puget Sound, there were many troubles that they ran into. First of all, if you've ever been to Seattle, you know that the roads downtown are so steep. I sometimes when we drive up them, I'm like, are we going to make it? So this is because they had to get trees from the forested areas where they cut them down to get them down into the lumber mill. And the lumberjacks would cut down the trees and then they would have horses or oxen that would pull the logs down to the mill. And to make this easier, they took the road called Yesler Way. It was called that because it led to the Yesler Mill. Eh? And they put wooden slats that they would oil up with bacon grease or other any kind of oily slippery stuff and they would just kind of let the wood slip and slide its way down the hill it doesn't sound very safe but that's what they did and it was called skidding and that is where the original skid row term comes from fun fact so they were like look at us we're doing great we're slaying look at our businesses and buildings absolutely thriving we're just sliding all the slumber around and everything is a party Except that it wasn't because the original city was built at sea level, which meant it was constantly flooding, which meant that there were constantly rats in the streets. And on top of that, at one point, a huge chunk of the city was burnt to the ground. On June 6th, 1889, a fire started that devastated the entire community. Since they had a ton of lumber at their disposal, most of these buildings were, of course, made of wood. The source of this fire seems to be a little bit debated. People like to point fingers in different directions. But from what I understand, that afternoon, a pot of glue in a carpentry shop caught fire. This was arguably one of the worst shops for this to happen in because the floor was covered in wood chips and turpentine. So it just went up in flames. The workers tried to throw water on the fire, which actually made it worse because turpentine is oil. So this was an oil fire that they were dealing with. The flames ripped through the whole block and eventually hit a liquor store, highly flammable, that exploded. Wooden boardwalks spread the fire between the city blocks and the fire raged on until the next morning. They weren't totally unprepared for the possibility of a fire, but the problem was that they tried to hook up hoses to all of these different fire hydrants, but there was only one line that went to each of them, so there wasn't enough water pressure to fuel all of them by the time it was all said and done. 25 blocks, including the entire business district, four of the city's wharves, and the railroad terminal were completely destroyed. It was devastating. By an insane amount of luck, very few people died during the fire. Some sources say that there were no deaths in the fire, and other sources say that there, there was just a handful. But either way, it was very minimal um, bodily harm, which is very, very good. After the fire, and because they had this flooding issue, they decided that they needed to come up with some kind of way to rebuild and expand the city bigger and better than ever. A lot of the buildings that burnt down were rebuilt, this time with stone and brick instead of wood. <laughs> Good idea. And then they began to raise the city. There's obviously a lot more engineering and important facts that went into it, but basically to sum it up, they built walls that were between 12 feet in some areas and 20 feet in others um, between the buildings. While the construction was happening, people would have to climb up ladders cross over and go down the ladders on the other side to get over the walls while they were being built. And don't forget, this is the early 1900s. So it's not like you were out there in your leggings and your Nikes scaling ladders like it was nothing. You're in 20 layers, including petticoats and skirts and dresses. What a nightmare. <laughs> Anyways, as they built these walls and then a new road on top of those walls, there were still shops in the underground area. So they used to have these um, skylights to give light to the shops. And they used these super small, thick pieces of glass 
that were put into cement and there are actually a few areas that still have the glass in the sidewalks and not all of the glass that you see in the sidewalks is original some of it is but most of it's been replaced uh, but it's really cool to see it and especially to know why those are there so if you didn't know that there is a whole city underneath seattle next time you go take a look at the ground and notice those skylights because they're still there and it's so interesting it's so strange to be able to just like look down there and there's history. So after many years and a lot of work, the streets of Seattle had been built up and the new businesses were moving above ground. And in 1907, the entrances to the underground were sealed off, but eventually during prohibition, they were used for the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of it all, just like in Portland. Opium dens, illegal bootleg alcohol, brothels, etc. All the cool places to hang out just moved underneath the city. So as things go, like with many places during Prohibition, all of that seedy secret stuff had to go somewhere and it just opened up the walkway for crime to happen left and right. But either way, it is part of Seattle's history and some of that history, including sometimes scary haunted history, can be found in the tunnels that are still all around Seattle. So like I mentioned, for a long time, these tunnels were sealed off, but eventually a man named Bill Spadell helped to create a movement to have these tunnels preserved and celebrated as part of the history of Seattle. And Bill was a columnist for the Seattle Times, and in the 60s, the Pioneer Square area of Seattle was kind of falling apart. It needed major repairs, it was run down, and it just needed kind of a boost to get it back to the beautiful, gleaming thing it once was. There were talks of just completely ripping it down and starting fresh, but Bill Spadell was part of a group that worked really hard to restore the area rather than to destroy this piece of history. During that time, a woman reached out to Bill and was like, hey, what's the deal with these underground tunnels under Pioneer Square? And Bill has been described as a self-made historian, which I love. He's like the original Investigoogler. Um, and he put out a response in the paper and invited anyone and everyone who wanted to go along for a little tour of the underground just to see what it was all about. And this woman showed up and so did 500 other people, which was completely unexpected, but amazing. Memorial Day weekend in 1965, Bill took people on his tours. And since then, his company, Bill Spadell's Underground Tour, has been doing that ever since. Bill passed away in 1988, but the tour is still going strong. And I actually went on this tour the first time I went to Seattle and I absolutely loved it. They go into details about how Seattle was built, set on fire, rebuilt, and all the crazy pieces of history that it took to make this all happen. And I will be totally honest, I did a different tour on the most recent trip I took to Seattle. I'm not going to name which one, but it just... It wasn't the same. It wasn't as good as Bill Spadell's tour. And honestly, I should have just gone on that one again. But I wanted to see what I wanted to see, you know, what my options were. And don't get me wrong. It was really good, but it was a little bit shorter. And I feel like they didn't go into as much detail or cover some of the fun, spooky, alleged haunting parts. So if you want to do an underground tour in Seattle, do Bill's tour. I'm a believer. Okay. <laughs> it was fantastic. Also, I hope that Bill is down there haunting the tunnels of his own tour. Wouldn't that be great? So... Now that you have the background, a little taste of Seattle history, let's get into the haunts. One of my favorite Seattle history facts is the story of Madame Lou and her quote-unquote sewing circle. Let me give it to you straight. Seattle got a lot of money from liquor stores, gambling, and brothels. And denying that little tidbit of history would just not feel right. It was a town near a dock where sailors were in and out, and when they were in... It was a place for them to enjoy themselves after being out at sea with only each other for company, if you know what I mean. In about the mid-1800s, Seattle was heading down the straight and narrow. They got rid of the brothels and the gambling and the opium dens, and poof, there went all the sailors' money. 
they took away all the fun parts, and the main money coming into Seattle was from the logging company, but their financial budgets were also heavily padded by the taxes, fines, and licensing fees for all of these brothels, gambling dens, etc. It helps the economy, okay? And without those fun hangouts for the sailors to go, they decided to go on to different port cities and spend all of their money there. However, in the 1880s, a woman who went by the name Lou Graham entered the chat. The businessmen at the top were not stoked about doing business with a woman, typical, but the great Madame Lou was a powerhouse. She came up with an idea that made so much sense that it would make her very wealthy and bring more money into the city, so they decided to trust her and go for it, even though she was a woman. Madame Lou wanted to create a classy establishment where the sailors and city men could kick back and unwind. City council members would drink for free, and it would be employed with the most beautiful women who were smart, well-educated, and could hold entertaining conversations for the same price someone would pay to stay at a nice hotel. Personally, I think the businessmen must have been in some kind of a mental war with themselves because they didn't want to give a woman rights to a business, but their horniness overrode that side, and they were like, beautiful women and free booze? Let's go for it. So the agreement was that the women employed at Madame Lou's mansion would put seamstress, quote-unquote, on official documentation, and so that is how Madame Lou's sewing circle was born. These women were paid very well, the city got more business, and the taxes helped to pay for some of the repairs that needed to be done after the fire, and Madame Lou became known as one of the wealthiest people in the city. Get it, girl. When the Seattle fire burned down everyone's businesses and most of them struggled to rebuild, Madame Lou was able to reestablish her business much quicker than most people in a much nicer mansion for the quote-unquote seamstresses to do their work. On the underground tour, it was mentioned that sometimes down in the tunnels, you may experience the presence of one of those ladies. Maybe you'll smell some perfume or the sound of a large skirt rustling past you in the dark or even experience a ghostly apparition of a beautiful woman. It would make sense that their ghosts are still floating around. After all, they were a huge part and a big building block in Seattle's history and a big reason of why the city is standing today. I believe there's a picture that they show you at the end of the Bill Spadell tour. It wasn't online and I wish that it was, but people take pictures during their tours all the time and there have been some spooky things caught in those photos. And I believe there is one where you can see like a woman apparition there and people believe that it's one of the ladies in the sewing circle. So now that I've told you one of my favorite things about the underground and the history of how there's a whole city underneath a city, let's talk about my favorite place in the entire world, Pike Place Market. I know that it's such a cliche to say that is my favorite place, but it truly is. Like, if I could snap my fingers and be somewhere right now, it would be Pike Place with a bowl of chowder. <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous. Everyone is so cool and nice, and there are so many delicious things to eat, which is one of my other favorite things to do while traveling. Pike Place has been around for a very long time and is also rich with history, which means it's also rich with hauntings. I have done a food tour and a spooky tour at the market, and I highly recommend both of those. Um, and then I also picked up this book last time I was there, which is Seattle's Market Ghost Stories by uh, Mercedes Yeager. I loved this book. I love Seattle so much, and it's so fun to learn more about the history of it and then some of the haunted things sprinkled in. Um, so here are a few of my favorite haunts. I could not name all of them because we'd be here for hours, but a few of my favorite haunts in the market, starting with my very favorite place to get coffee in Seattle, Ghost Alley Espresso. Also, I'm going to link the tours that I've been on in the episode description for this and in a blog post on my website. That's tgicrimeday.com if you ever need recommendations of spooky things to do on your travels. That's where it is. So, tucked away in Post Alley right by the disgustingly fun gum wall is Ghost Alley Espresso. 
let me clarify that really quick. If you've never been to Seattle or you haven't seen the photos, there is an alleyway where people stick their chewed gum to the wall. I should have double checked why that is, but it's like a tourist attraction. It's disgusting, but I absolutely love it. Anyways, at the end of the gum wall in Post Alley is where Ghost Alley Espresso is located. Um, And whenever we are in Seattle, my husband and I go there like twice a day. Also, fun fact, it's called Post Alley because this is where Seattle's very first post office was built in 1880. Fun fact. Um, And then Ghost Alley Espresso has delicious coffee and, of course, ghosts. Something that I didn't know until I read her book is that Mercedes Yeager is actually the person who opened Ghost Alley Espresso and her dad used to do haunted tours there. So she knows all the best things. And I wanted to include her personal story in her own words in her book because it's wonderful. So let me read that to you really quick. I opened my own business in Post Alley, Ghost Alley Espresso, in 2012 and have since sold it. When I opened Ghost Alley Espresso, it was clear that something or someone was present there. When securing anything to the east wall of the shop, I would use wire as well as nails, wrapping the wire both around the nail and any painting or fixture I put up because things would fall or even fly off the nails. Electronics in the shops proved problematic and still do today. The iPad, register, and espresso equipment would often behave as though someone unseen was interacting with them. The shop is routinely cleansed with sage and mediums hired to talk to the spirits. Arthur Goodwin, one of the market's first managers and a designer of the buildings, had his office close to Ghost Alley Espresso. Arthur designed the interior of the market to look like a theater. If you look up while walking in the arcade near Pike Place Fish, you will see thousands of round theatrical bulbs lighting the ceiling. You may also start to notice the decorated pillars and columns throughout the market. Arthur may be one of the only ghosts that haunt Lower Post Alley, but he is the one that makes himself most known. Baristas at Ghost Alley Espresso have felt the presence of a man in the shop. One barista, while closing up, saw the apparition of a tall man in a hat standing in the doorway. Arthur Goodwin was famous for his black top hat that he wore almost every day in the market. Because the shop is built into the attendance room of a 1908 men's bathroom, it was a place Arthur would have frequented daily. Perhaps he had his shoes shined or picked up a newspaper and sat in the window. It's easy to imagine all of the reasons that space would give his soul comfort, and with the dedication he had to the Pike Place Market, it is also easy to imagine him connected to the buildings he helped design, an angel in the Pike Place Market's history. Arthur Goodwin's pillars and arcades still stand 113 years since the inception of Pike Place Market. The market has survived threats to tear it down and rapid development on all sides of it. It remains an incubator of small businesses like the one I started, end quote. So, not only will you get a great cup of coffee, talk to some of the coolest people in Seattle, you might also catch a little glimpse of a ghostie if you stop by Ghost Alley Espresso. Whether or not you're a believer, I highly recommend you go there. I miss it every day. Up next, another haunted and very well-known restaurant, which is Kells Irish Pub, which I actually mentioned in my Portland episode because it's owned by the same people who own Kells Irish Pub in Portland. And both locations are allegedly very haunted, which I love for them. Kells is located in the Butterworth building, which was built in 1903 and has held many different businesses over the years, but the original building was for the Butterworth and Sons Mortuary. The mortuary was in this location for about 20 years, from 1903 to 1923, and had somewhat of a controversial reputation at times. Butterworth and Sons was the first place to offer everything from body retrieval to coffin sales to embalming to funeral services and burials. This was very different for that time. Usually you had to go to all different businesses to do that, but this business decided to become a one-stop shop for all things death-related. Some of the rumors and speculations about the mortuary is that there were coffins that were buried empty because the corpses had been sold for profit. And things like this absolutely would happen in the early 1900s because people would use these corpses for medical exploration and they would either dig up the graves or they would buy them from not so honest people, you know, 
I'm not trying to accuse anyone. Maybe the Butterworths did, maybe they didn't. There is also a lot of dark history surrounding the absolute nightmare person, Dr. Linda Hazard, who created this absolute junk science treatment of starvation that led to many of her patients dying horrible deaths. These patients' bodies were then taken to Butterworth and Sons, and people believe that that has added to a lot of the dark um, feelings and hauntings that happening in this building. I think that whether this business was totally squeaky clean and doing things properly, or if there were maybe some shady things happening on the side, a building like this has so much collected energy of grief and loss over the years, and whether or not you believe in hauntings, a place like that has energy. Collected in every crack and dark corner of that building is energy and history, and I think that that leaves its mark whether or not you believe in an actual ghost. This building has entrances on both sides. The one facing Pike Place Market is where Kells Irish Pub is currently located. And while there are rumors that this area was originally used as the crematorium, an article published in 1904 says that this area was actually used as a horse stable and storage for the funeral wagons. The McAleese family opened Kells in 1983, and for the most part, they've had a pretty easy time with the paranormal activity. Like I mentioned, this area held the horse stables, so I feel like it's probably better vibes down there than with the upper floors, which we will talk about in a moment. Kells is basically located in the basement area of this building. The owners frequently sprinkle holy water, and the ghost that seems to stick around is one of a young girl who will appear suddenly, sometimes terrifying guests. According to the employees, she is playful and friendly and seems to do no harm. And I kind of love the idea of a little girl ghost playing tricks on the people at the pub, like in the horse stables. It's fun. There is also one ghost story reported that isn't quite as charming as a little girl ghost. GhostCityTours.com says, quote, one incident of note involves the mother of the current owner of Kell's Irish Restaurant. One night, it is said that she fell down a flight of stairs, just barely avoiding serious injuries. When asked about it, she claims that she had been pushed, even despite there being no one around to do so. If the perpetrator was indeed another ghost haunting the historic pub, it would not be the first time that physical contact between people and spirits had been reported inside this building, end quote. Which then leads us to the opposite side of the building, the one that faces First Avenue. In her book, Mercedes Yeager talks about a cafe that was opened in the 80s that was called Cafe Sophie. And Cafe Sophie was in the part of the building that was used for private offices, embalming rooms, the morgue, and storage for the necessary utensils. One of the chefs working at Cafe Sophie said that they would see chairs hover, plates would break randomly, and there was just a feeling of unrest in the building. One night, while he was there alone, he saw what he described as, quote, a legion of the dead, which is terrifying. While he was standing up on a ladder changing a light bulb, he saw this group of spirits wander from the front of the cafe all the way through to the back. They were all different ages and races, but they were definitely spirits and not real humans. And after seeing that group of spirits, he quit, never to return. Eventually, Cafe Sophie closed and Avenue 1 opened. The owner of Avenue One heard about the troubles that Cafe Sophie had, so he called in a shaman to cleanse the restaurant, which seemed to work for a time. That is, until one afternoon, while multiple people were in the restaurant and witnessed this, there were wine bottles that shot out of their cabinet, flew across the restaurant, and crashed to the floor. Avenue One closed soon after this incident. Next to take over the space was a restaurant called Fire and Ice, and they signed a seven-year contract, spent a ton of money to remodel the entire restaurant inside, and then suddenly the restaurant closed after only being in business for seven months. And no one really knows exactly what happened with Fire and Ice, but this building remained empty for months after that. 
One of the other things that Mercedes mentions in her book is that during a few of her ghost tours, and this happened multiple times, they would be standing in front of the Butterworth building talking about the history, and there would be a guest on the tour who would suddenly get very dizzy and very sick and pass out. It only ever happened in front of that exact area. It wasn't like they were talking about anything particularly gory or like upsetting. They were talking about the history of the building and the architecture. And all of a sudden, these people would just get super sick and pass out. And it happened not only to Mercedes on one of her tours, but to another tour guide in that same exact spot in front of the Butterworth building. There's something about it. There is something about that area. I don't know. And then one last kind of sad but very interesting fact about Pike Place Market that I wanted to share In the 70s and 80s, there was a big remodel done to preserve and update parts of the market. And one of the ways that they were raising money was by offering tiles um, that would line the floors of the market. Basically, you can buy a tile for $35 and then they would have their names inscribed of the person who donated it. Or you could do like a special message and those are what line the floors of Pike Place Market. And as you walk through the market, you see all kinds of names and messages. And some of them are really sweet and, you know, just fun and interesting things. Something that I did not know about was that one of these tiles is a standout because it was dedicated by the Heaven's Gate cult. The cult leader, Marshall Applewhite, and some of his followers would visit popular tourist destinations to try to recruit people. And apparently, they were working their way through Pike Place Market on June 8th, 1985, where they stopped to donate money and bought a permanent tile that now has Heaven's Gate written on it. I'm not going to go into the details of the Heaven's Gate cult, at this moment because this video is like light and kind of we're keeping it fun and spooky um but it's a devastating story and an absolute tragedy like cults generally are um and part of me kind of feels like and I would love to know people's opinion on this part of me kind of feels like they should remove that tile because it feels so morbid and awful that it's there but also part of me feels like it's kind of a tribute to the victims of Marshall Applewhite so I would love to know what you guys think about that. I didn't even know that this tile was there until I read the book, but I do think it's really interesting and so strange to think about the fact that those cult members were there recruiting people and they bought a tile and now forever Heaven's Gate is ingrained into the history of Pike Place. Thank you so much for joining me for this spooky history episode. I hope that you liked it. Like I mentioned, I have a couple of others about Paris and London. If you would like to learn some spooky history facts about those beautiful places, I will have those linked in the description of this episode. And if you have any ghost stories from any of the places that I mentioned or just anywhere that you've visited, maybe it's your own house, I would love to hear them. Please send me your ghost stories to tgicrimeday at gmail.com. I would love to put together an episode of your personal ghost stories in the future. So send me those. I would love to hear them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcasts. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. Until next time. Keep it spooky. (laughs) 